please stand for the reading of God's word. <laughs> uh, today's passage comes from John. It's uh, 11, 45 through 12, 8. <clears throat> Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into Jesus, excuse me, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer wandered, walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he, was who, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Thank you, Derek. Um, thank you all who uh, are either here this morning or are online watching uh, at home. Um, I pray that this will be edifying to you, but we're going to continue in uh, our series of John through uh, the end of chapter 11 and then into chapter 12 this morning. My name is Aaron Spurlock. I'm a pastoral apprenticeship, or I'm a pastoral apprentice here at Midlands, um, and I am glad you're here this morning. Let me pray for us real quick before we jump in. Father, thank you um, for this day. Lord, thank you that you have given us breath. Thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, this morning, may you speak. May um, those who are listening, may they have open ears to hear your truth, and may they have open eyes to see Jesus this morning, Lord. Um, pray this in your son's name. Amen. Um, who in here has ever seen the show? I don't know if it's still airing. It might be picked up by one of these streaming networks, but uh, ever seen the show Mythbusters? 
Mythbusters, right? If you haven't, you probably understand the concept of it. You've probably heard about it just in pop culture references and things like that. Essentially, there's these two scientists. It kind of centers around there's a scientific team, I guess, uh, that they have that will try and bust or prove uh, a myth, whether it's a myth that of like a, a car action scene in a movie, like could that actually physically happen? Uh, and or if there's some type of explosion, does do these compounds actually explode or this, that, and the other, right? Uh, and then at the end of the episode, after they've done all these different scientific experiments, they would say whether the myth was busted or I don't know what the other one is, maybe proven. I've watched it like twice. So, uh, but that's essentially the concept, right? Is, is trying to figure out if something was true or not. Um, I bring that up because I feel like this passage, uh, at least the end of chapter 11, um, we kind of get uh, one of the myths that I see and hear and have even said oftentimes uh, in the 21st century and we get that kind of busted on us. Uh, and it's the myth that, you know, if I could just see f- with my own eyes, then I would actually really, truly be moved to belief. Seeing is believing, right? In the end of chapter 11, we see that uh, right there in, in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, some believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So some believed, and yet some saw with their eyes that Jesus just raised a man from the dead. This Jesus who had before turned water into wine, this Jesus who had before fed 5,000 people, this Jesus who had given sight to a blind man, this Jesus who healed the lame beggar, this Jesus now just did the absolute impossible. There's no way to disprove what he just did. He raised a man from the dead and they saw it with their own eyes and yet they still went away not believing. They still went away not believing. Kevin DeYoung um, says this. He says, these men saw the miracles, but they squinted hard enough to not see Jesus. I think the question that we have before us this morning is, why do we do this? Why do we come here on Sundays? Why do we meet with community groups? Why do we uh, have community at all around Christ if it is not to see Jesus? Did you come this morning to hope to experience him in some um, mystical, spiritual way that will heighten your affections so that you can actually apply them in your daily actions? Or did you come here this morning to see Jesus? Because seeing Jesus is the only thing that's actually going to do anything to our lives. It's actually going to evoke any real change in who we are as people. I pray that the Spirit would open your eyes to what he has opened my eyes to in this past week. We're about to see this stark contrast between those who saw Jesus and those who didn't. So 
again, we're looking at John 11, 45 through 12. Uh, we read eight, but we're actually going to go through 12, 11. Um, just kind of touch on that. It's kind of inserted here, and it, it doesn't really flow with the triumphal entry. So we're going to touch on that as well. Um, uh, but we're going to look at two things. It's essentially a two-part sermon. There's going to be the first part, which is the proposal, and that is this chunk right here at the end of 11, and then we're going to look at the party in uh, chapter 12. So the proposal and the party. And as we've noted before, John spends the first 11 chapters of his book um, covering essentially three years of Jesus's earthly ministry. And then you might notice that, hey, that's all of Jesus's ministry, but we still have like 10 chapters left, right? These next 10 chapters are going to cover about six days of Jesus's life and then some days after his resurrection. So about a week of Jesus's life is now going to be detailed for us in the second half of this book. Why would John spend 10 chapters detailing seven, eight, nine days of Jesus's life? And then spend 11 chapters detailing three years of it. Well, because I think this last week of Jesus's life, every aspect of it is detailing exactly what John is trying to get across is that Jesus is in fact the son of God. Jesus is in fact the son of God. And if you really want to see Jesus this morning, if you really want to savor him as our substitutionary savior, then you need to understand the last week of Jesus's life. So here we are approaching that. How do we get there? Well, Jesus just did his seventh uh, sign or seventh miracle that, that John writes down, which is the raising of Lazarus. And it gives us these two different parties, these two different people groups that either believe or they do not believe. As you might remember, many of the Jews in, their, in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus community, they came to comfort Mary and Martha after Lazarus had died, right? So they're coming to their house, they're having this big wake, and then all of a sudden, Jesus, the Messiah, comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead, and now they're like, okay, well, we came for this wake, now what do we do, right? It, it more than likely turns into a celebration, a party. Well, the half that don't believe, there's nothing to celebrate. They're confused. They don't know what to do with this. So what do they do? They go to the Pharisees. They go to the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And they say, okay, what are we going to do about this Jesus? Because what's going to happen is it's, it's become undeniable as to who Jesus actually is and what he is, he is able to accomplish, the power that he has within him. It's undeniable. There's no way that they can get around the fact that this man was dead and now he is living because Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. So the only solution they come to is we must kill this man. Because what's at stake is our comfort in the, the empire of Rome. Now, Rome would often, whenever they would conquer a nation, they wouldn't just um, absorb all the nation's responsibilities and then take over it and just be like, okay, we're going to have a Roman mayor, a Roman governor, a Roman city council, all this stuff. They would have one person to look over it all, oversee it, 
right? Pontius Pilate would look over it all. They'd have Roman soldiers to kind of patrol the area. But everything from a practical day-to-day standpoint, they would want to have the people keep that responsibility so that they didn't have to put their people in all these different cities. But yet they still owned the land and still controlled the populace there. So that's exactly what's happening here. Essentially, the nation of Israel, the city uh, or country province of Jerusalem was completely free in all intensive practical purposes as long as they remained um, under the rule of Rome, right? As long as they weren't going against Caesar. So they saw what Jesus was doing and they, they saw the people saying that he was the Messiah, the chosen one come to reign and rule on this earth. They saw that this is going to make things pretty shaky with Rome. Rome's going to see this as an attack and they're going to squash it pretty quick. What, that, what that's going to do to these Jerusalem rulers is now their authority is going to be stripped from them. Now Rome is actually going to come in and rule in every uh, area, every facet of their life. They will have a Roman ruler rather than Jewish rule. So they said, we got to do something. It says this, read it again. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Notice that they understand this intellectually. They can't get around this. They know that if he continues on, then everyone will become Christians. Everyone will believe that he is the Messiah. So what are we to do? And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But none of them, I'm I'm sorry, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, how ironic are these words of Caiaphas? The chief priests, the the high priest who... Uh, who fulfilled an office that has been in place for the nation of Israel for, for centuries. And he's the last high priest with any sort of authority, with any sort of rule. Why? Because Jesus becomes the great high priest. And he says these words, and he's, he's talking down to this Sanhedrin, basically the Supreme Court of, Jew, of Jewish rule back in the day. And he talks down to them and he's like, you guys know nothing. Y'all are, y'all are dumb. Y'all are idiots. What are, what are you thinking? This is what we have to do. This is the only solution. Why would we sacrifice our way of living when we could just sacrifice him? 
It's better that one man die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. Now, there's a couple of things in here that I want to unpack that's, you know, obviously this, this statement's ironic, um, but within this proposal of Caiaphas, there's two things that I really want to focus in on. And the first thing is that even though this man is essentially spewing heresy at this point because he's denying that Jesus Christ is the, is the Christ, is the Messiah, he says something that we hold very near and dear to our hearts theologically as Christians, which is the idea of substitutionary atonement. If someone were to ask you, uh, put in one word your Christian theology. There's a lot of words that might come to mind, love, grace, compassion, these things that the Holy Spirit gives us whenever we, uh, whenever we have a regenerate heart, with the one word that theologically summarizes everything is substitution. Substitution. That this one man who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might have the righteousness of Christ. Substitution. And this is something that is not foreign to the uh, Jewish leaders. They, they knew this very well. In Genesis, whenever, um, whenever they, they, uh, Adam and Eve first sinned, what did God do? God sacrificed an animal so that they might be clothed. And it goes through, and then we were about to approach the Passover festival, which, if you remember from our Exodus series, is that the Passover festival is celebrating when God brought the people out of Egypt, the people of Israel out of Egypt, by sacrificing lambs and, and spreading their blood over their doorpost. It covered them from the wrath of God. This sacrifice, this atonement, this idea is well known to the Jewish people. And he says, we should kill this one man so that the nation may continue to live. Substitutionary atonement. And we see this throughout John's gospel. Whenever, whenever John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Or in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Or whenever he was talking about uh, in chapter six, after feeding the 5,000 about what the people really need, needed to eat and to drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the father has, as a, as a living father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And then John chapter 10, talking about the good shepherd and how Jesus is the good shepherd. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that for as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, Adam and Eve, they hid behind a tree, naked and covered in shame. And that is each and every one of us. But Jesus, as we're going to see in the next 10 chapters, will hang on a tree naked, not covered in shame, but conquering shame. You see, Jesus on the cross is the great substitution. Again, I think there's many things to kind of unpack from these words of Caiaphas, but the second thing that I want to focus in on is that these words, this death sentence to Jesus Christ, they were the words spoken by Caiaphas, but they were the words of God. They were the words of God. And we hear that and we get a little uneasy um, to hear that God, the Father, has spoken the death sentence of his son into existence. This, this statement will ultimately unfold in the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's better for this one man to die so that the nation could continue to live. These are the words of God. And I think the practical application of this, one of the practical applications of this, is that in the midst of chaos and corruption and evil, we think that, that this, these situations just kind of come into existence and then God has to observe it, has to kind of dissect it and then be like, okay, this is how I'm going to bring good out of this situation. Through Josh's prayer this morning, we've, we've heard different sufferings, different, different people and suffering in different ways, different degrees of suffering. Do we as a people believe the words of Paul in Romans 8 that God works all things together for the good of those who love him? God works all things for the good of us and for the glory of of himself. And it's not like he sees that situation and then works it into something good. He has spoken these words before the foundation of the world. He knew that his son was going to have to lay down his life to step in as a substitute so that you and I might experience a true relationship with him, might experience what true spiritual life is. that we might be able to look at our sufferings and our anguish and our pain and the mess that is our life. We might be able to present it before God and say, God, I know that you're working this for my good in some way, somehow, some fashion, and I'm going to trust you and your goodness and your kindness and in your sovereignty to work this out. See, if we don't believe in the sovereignty of God, if we don't believe that these are the words of the Lord, then our practical life is going to just be aimless. We're not going to know what to do whenever life comes at us really hard. Whenever it's our friend that passes away in a car accident or it's our brother or sister or parents who, who die of a disease. We're not going to know what to do with this. 
But because of the sovereignty and because of the goodness of God, we know that before the foundation of the world, he has laid this out for us. And we can trust in him. This is the most heinous act of human history. And yet God glorifies himself and brings us to him through it. You know, I, I came to this passage and I was just thinking through this idea of substitutionary atonement and ultimately what it comes down to is that I personally deserve death. I deserve pain. I deserve suffering because I have ultimately offended, cosmically offended the one true and pure God the creator and sustainer of all these things. I have no right to the breath that, are, that is in my lungs right now. But Paul says these words, in the midst of my misery, in the midst of my deathly existence, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We are helpless without this substitute. But because we have this substitute, Jesus speaks into the mess that is our life, that speaks into the sinful brokenness that is our souls. And he gives purpose to it. He gives meaning to our pain. He will be glorified and it'll be worked out for our good says this, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. This is interesting how John says that many uh, from the country of Jerusalem came uh, before the Passover to purify themselves and then jumps right into this next uh, phrase. They were looking for Jesus. They were coming to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus. I don't know if there's any true connection there, but I thought that was interesting. And saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. That's the pr proposal. We need to arrest this man and we need to kill him so that we might live. What a coincidence that uh, Caiaphas would propose this as people began flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate the great Passover, the great substitution of their history. It's almost as if God had sovereignly planned all of this out in advance or something. Now we come to the final week of Jesus' life and to the second part of the sermon, the party, uh, in chapter 12. Um, let's read it. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now let's pause right there. Let's think about this for a second. So 
You can kind of imagine with John as he's writing through this, all the chaos that is surrounding Jerusalem right now as they're approaching the Passover. Millions of Jews are coming to Jerusalem to come and celebrate this great event that happened in the history of their people. They're coming and they're looking for Jesus. And then they hear that the chief priests and uh, the Jewish rulers have essentially put a bounty out on Jesus's head. Hey, we need to arrest this guy. Okay, what are you going to do whenever you arrest them? Well, it's pretty clear that what they're doing is what they've been trying to do in different situations where they tried to pick up stones and stone him, right? They're, they want to kill him. These people have come to see Jesus. They've come to see Lazarus because they've heard of what has happened. And all these people are being told, you need to arrest him. As soon as you see him, let us know where he is so that we can arrest him. And then it's almost as if there's like, in a movie scene, a sharp cut. The director cuts to another scene. This chaotic scene of Jerusalem, and now there's this calmness that is this celebration, this party in someone's house, a friend's house. We're told in, uh, in Matthew that this is actually the house of Simon the leper. Um, maybe more politically correct uh, would be Simon the ex-leper because lepers didn't actually uh, have any type of interaction with people back then. So this was obviously a person who was healed by Jesus prior to inviting all these disciples and friends and family over to his house. And who are the friends and family that are at the house but Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus, whom he just raised from the dead. And so what does it say at the beginning of verse 2? That they served him a dinner. They're celebrating Jesus. You would think, you know, hey, my brother just came back from the dead. Let's celebrate Lazarus. Lazarus is alive. Lazarus wants no part of that. Lazarus knows who to celebrate. Mary and Martha know who to celebrate, and it's Jesus. Now, oftentimes, as uh, the reason why I wanted to stop there at, in verse 2 is because we'll read this, and then we'll, we're, we'll kind of pit um, Mary and Judas against each other, and essentially the application, which this might be the application at the end of the sermon, I don't know, but uh, Mary is essentially the person that we need to strive after to be like, and then don't be like Judas, which makes sense, right? If there's anybody in opposition to Judas, like go with that person who is not Judas. If ever there's a situation where it's like, hey, you could be like Judas in this way, or you can be like X, Y, and Z, go with X, Y, and Z every time, okay? It's a pretty, pretty simple application there. But I do want to look at um, Martha and Lazarus, because I, although they're briefly mentioned, I think they're mentioned here for a reason. Now, let's look at the, the three characters. Martha served Jesus, Lazarus reclined with Jesus, and then Mary anointed Jesus. So first, Martha served. Now, how awful would it have been if they said, hey, Jesus, let's, let's go to uh, our friend Simon's house and let's have a dinner. Let's celebrate you. Let's uh, celebrate the fact that you just did this amazing thing, that we're all back together as friends and as family, and let's celebrate what you've done. And then they get there, and there's no food prepared. They get there, there's no water or wine to drink. There's nothing to be had, nothing to celebrate over, nothing to commune over. 
How awful would that have been? That'd be like showing up to a surprise birthday party with no cake or with no ice cream or with no banner, right? It's just like, oh, this is just a room with friends. Okay, that's cool, kind of, sure. Um, but they needed something of substance to come around and enjoy together. And who better to do that than Martha, who we've seen throughout the Gospels be a person who is geared towards service. We read in another Gospel where Mar Martha is gently rebuked by Jesus because Martha tries to impose her responsibilities, her giftings on her, her sister, Mary. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 Martha, that's not Mary's job. Mary has chosen what is good for her. And Martha understands that. Martha understands that at, in this moment, what's good for Martha is to serve. The reason I want to point this out is because too often we assume that, um, that missionaries, that worship leaders or, or pastors or preachers have some sort of... Um, higher value to them just because they have some sort of spotlight and they're in the way that they serve the Lord. Like right now, this light is, is kind of blinding me and I can't really see you guys. So I don't like that. But all of a sudden now, because I'm here on this stage, there's, there's some sort of thing that makes it seem like this is more important than Cam going out and laying out the signs to direct people in here or the people who have laid out the hand sanitizer to make sure that we're safe, or the mask, or, or this, that, and the other. The point of Martha serve, these two words, is to show that in any way, any, any possible fashion, there is a way to glorify the Lord in what you do. Take heart, Christian, in any point of service, there is a way that your heart can be showing love and adoration to the Savior. If you don't believe me, look at Lazarus. Lazarus, it just says, was one of those reclining with him. It almost seems like Lazarus is doing nothing, right? Seems like Lazarus has the easy part. Well, let's be uh, kind to Lazarus. He was just dead a couple of days ago. So Lazarus is here, and he's just kind of here, right? He's not serving. He's not anointing. He's just here. I think that tells us something too. How often are we willing to just be with Jesus? Too often times we think we must be doing something. I am the, the guiltiest party in this category. I feel like I must be doing something, some, some sort of service, I must be displaying some sort of affection. And I never just stop and recline with Jesus. See, Lazarus reclining served two different purposes. One, as you'll see later on in verses 9 through 11, that, that Lazarus became essentially just as popular or just, of a big, or just as big of a reason to come and see Jesus as Jesus himself. People wanted to see Lazarus. So the fact that Lazarus was just there, moving around, not just this corpse that was just propped up there, he was reclining, he was doing human things, he was alive. That glorified the Lord. And number two, it's the being still 
with the Lord, enjoying food and drink, eating and drinking for the glory of God. And then, obviously, the third person who is, uh, I guess, the loudest example of of service in our uh, passage, which is um, this idea of Mary anointing Jesus with perfume. Now, I know I'm I'm running a little long, but I think this is really important. So hopefully you'll re-engage with me here uh, as I talk about Acts body spray. Um, So... Those of you who either took an interest in 13 and 14-year-old boys, uh, hopefully it was girls who took an interest in 13 and 14-year-old boys whenever you're around that age, or if you were a 13 or 14-year-old boy like I was, and you were gifted maybe on Christmas or your birthday, this wonderful, magical potion called Axe Body Spray, um, you understand how, I guess, consuming that scent could be, right? Right? It wasn't always a great scent. More than likely, it wasn't a good scent at all. But boys just assumed, because of the commercials or whatever, that if we sprayed this on ourselves, all the girls that we look after and we like and we want to talk to, they're going to smell us and they're going to want to talk to us, right? That was a thought. Never worked out for me. Um, And it more than likely didn't work out for guys who used Axe Body Spray because it smelled so terribly. Now... Have that smell in your mind. When I would spray myself down before Wednesday night church, uh, my entire house would smell like Axe body spray. All my sisters would complain. My mom would complain. My brothers would be like, dude, you need some cologne and some deodorant, and that's it. And I'm like, no, man, I got this spray. I'm good. And so I would go, and we'd, we'd go to church, and then we'd come back, and that scent would still remain. And I would think it was the greatest thing ever. I'd be like, okay, I did just the right amount of Axe body spray. And now I know that that's not true. Um, that idea that a scent can just consume a household, this is the idea that, that we're given here in, uh, in verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, nothing about what Mary did here was normal, right? Obviously, as we'll see in John chapter 13, whenever Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, takes on the form of a servant by doing so, uh, that was normal. You would come to uh, this table, you're all kind of sitting on the ground, uh, and you're about to eat, and the dirtiest part of uh, the human body back then was often the feet, right? Uh, The feet were so dirty because you didn't have closed-toed shoes, you'd have these sandals, you're walking in this kind of desert-like area, and so they're just dirty. So you would have a servant that would come and wash the feet. That's not what Mary's doing here. In fact, what Mary does here is really, really inappropriate. It It was extremely unheard of for a Jewish woman to let her hair down at all in the presence of a man who was not her husband. And yet he, she's on the floor wiping a man who's not her husband's feet with her hair. That's unheard of. That's not normal. And so before we, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't cast judgment on Judas, but before we cast judgment on Judas, let's try and stand in the spot that he's standing in. 
We see that in Matthew 26, in the same scene as Matthew tells us, says that the disciples were indignant towards Mary. Like, what are you doing, Mary? Why would you do this? It wasn't just Judas, although Judas is the one that spoke up. Now, let's think about how valuable this ointment, this perfume actually was. Now, it was, as, uh, as Judas tells us, the man who uh, knew just how much this perfume cost. It was a man who knew the price of everything, but knew the value of absolutely nothing. This man says it's about 300 denarii. Now, one denarii is a day's wage. So 300, essentially a, a year's salary, right? If you count in weekends and vacations and things like that. Essentially a year's salary. And so the average yearly salary in Columbia, South Carolina today uh, is for a household is uh, 43,000 in the year. That's the average household income, right? So this is as if Mary just dumps $43,000 on somebody's feet. And it's not like she can regather the the change and put it back in uh, a piggy bank or anything. There's, there's no way to salvage what she just poured out. It's gone. It has been poured out. The fumes have now uh, dispersed across the entire house. And what are you doing, Mary? What are you doing? Why would you do this? And Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? See, for all they knew, all Mary knew, this would be one of the last times that she would be able to express how valuable her savior is to her. It was almost an impulsive thing. What is the most valuable thing in my possession, it's this perfume. What can I do with it? Well, let me just pour it on his feet. Let me show him how much I love him and how much he means to me. And what Judas did, this might be one of the last times that I can get something from this guy. Something of value to me, money. Judas's mindset led him not only to spiritual death, but ultimately to physical death in the coming days. And Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for my burial. What is it that he's wanting her to keep? It's not this perfume that I just said was just spilt across the floor and now can no longer be put in a bottle. It's gone. The perfume has been spent. So what is it that she needs to keep for his burial? It was this experience was to know the value and the worth of Jesus, to remember the goodness and kindness and sovereignty and power of Jesus. In this moment, right after her, her brother was raised from the dead, she experienced this overflowing joy, overflowing love and worship and gladness to Jesus. And Jesus said, you need to keep that. Judas Shut up because what you're doing is trying to steal it from her. And she needs to keep it because in about a week's time, I'm going to be in the tomb. What's going to happen then? What's going to happen to you and me when we feel like the Lord has abandoned us? When we experience the suffering and the trials of this world, what do we have to hold on to? 
if it's not to walk back into our home and then to just feel and smell the sense of the Lord's goodness and kindness to us. This is how we savor the substitutionary savior that we have in Christ. In the good times and in the bad times, the times that we have no idea what's going on, we must express the love that we have for our savior. The application is this, be merry. Don't count the cost. Don't be like, okay, well, I could just give a 10th to the Lord right now, right? Like that would, be, that would be plenty. Give what the Lord has put on your heart to give, not just in, in terms of offering, but in terms of worship. Love the Lord, your God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the son of God. This is what John wants us to see this morning. How are we going to show our worship and our gladness to him? Because there's going to come a day we're going to wonder why we worship him in the first place. There's going to come a day where the evil that, that is this world is going to surround us and it's going to seem like there's nothing good and nothing valuable in this life. Well, may we remember the value that we put in Christ and in his power so that when those days come, we may be able to worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for this day. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for, Lord, your power. Um, Lord, may we be a people um, that we can insert our names in those three different characters placed in the story. May I be a person that I can insert my name there, that Aaron served, that Aaron reclined, that Aaron stopped and and enjoyed Jesus, that Aaron expressed his love for his Savior by doing something that makes no logical sense, but it shows value to who you are. And Lord, may the people around us look at us the way that they looked at Lazarus in verses 9 through 11, where they believed on account of our testimony. Father, you have miraculously saved us. You have brought us out of the sin, out of the muck that is our lives. May we worship you and honor you in righteousness and in love. And may we honor and love one another. Lord, we pray this in your son's name. Amen.